Let's continue on. Um, when we broke for the last session, I posed the question, how in the world are they going to manage to sell this idea of global governance uh, and one world is to uh, people like you and me? And, and hopefully part of what we take away from a time like this is you won't buy into it and you'll see through it and it'll be transparent as to what's actually going on. But uh, you need to understand that it's, it's, there is a strategy, and it's one of the things that got me thinking in the whole direction I'm going tonight was because I had been pondering for months why there was a kind of emphasis that we have in our country that is not really objective or realistic. In other words, we're being told to be, we're becoming very concerned about things that are problems, but they're not major problems in the sense that they will bring an end to civilization as we know it. And there are other issues, like some of the things we've touched on, that are ma making dramatic changes, and they're not even being touched on. And so that's where I want to begin. But I want to begin by really, uh, again, going back to a quote I gave you from uh, David Rockefeller, uh, one of the founding members of the Trilateral Commission, who made the following statement again. He says, all we need is the right major crisis and the nations will accept the new world order. I mean, if you look at upheaval or change in, in regime in countries, especially democratically-based countries, you'll find that the way they made that shift was by creating a, a crisis. I mean, Hitler was able to uh, really bring in the National Socialist Program into Germany simply because people were s suffering. There was poverty, there was unemployment, the currency had been devalued to almost nothing, and people were desperate for an answer, and so he came along and said, here's the answer. In Germany, they would drive into various cities and towns and villages with truckloads of bread and hand them out to people for free as part of their campaign to win the hearts and the souls of men. And that's the dynamic. If you bring people in a place of where they're just desperate to have help, they're going to stop asking about your ideology or your religion or your philosophy. If you can feed me when I'm hungry, then you're my friend. And the same thing is, has, has taken place throughout history. When we look at the great shift that took place during the American Depression, the Great Depression, there was a tremendous shift from a uh, self-sufficient culture into a culture that was majorly dependent upon government programs, many of the government programs that you and I take for granted and honestly benefit from and feel quite comfortable with, our forefathers would have been horrified because they really go around against the whole idea of the government being a, a really, uh, it's, I, I described it as being like a farmer. A farmer's job is to create an environment for the crops to grow. He doesn't make the seed produce. And yet, that's what government does now. It's come, as it encroaches, it becomes not only the place of creating the environment, it controls the environment and controls everything that comes out of it. And that was a very different concept than what our founding fathers had and for generations was part of our culture. And I would say up and through my own parents' generation. All of that changed. But why did it change? Well, because of need. People were hungry, people were unemployed, people were suffering. 25% of the people on unemployment during the Great Depression. I mean, people just really stopped becoming ideologues. They stopped believing in certain principles if it can deliver food to the table. And so when Rockefeller made this statement, he was speaking about something that he understood about human nature, and not him alone. You might recall in uh, 2007 when we went through the, uh, <clears throat> the uh, recession, the Great Recession, um, 
that uh, Rahm Emanuel, who now is the mayor of Chicago, but at the time was uh, chief of staff with President Obama, he made the comment, he said on, on a, a TV interview show, he said, you never want a serious crisis to go to waste. And what I mean by that is an opportunity to do things you could not do before. In other words, he said he understands when people are in a place of crisis, they're going to be willing to let us do things that otherwise they would not allow us to do it. And what they did is they completely restructured the banking system. For better or for worse, uh, <clears throat> they made major changes in, and brought an incredible amount of control of how the banking and financial uh, system of the United States is now under the auspices and the control of the United States government. We aren't, most of us aren't aware of that, but they control a great deal of it and what goes on. And of course, with Obamacare, it, it turned a, a, you know, one-sixth of the entire economy now is controlled ostensibly by the, the federal government. And uh, <clears throat> it won't be until after our current president is out of office that people will begin to realize the real price tag on that program, as good as it may be, I was talking with my son a few weeks ago, my son Ben up in Sandpoint, he was telling me that he said we were on, because of our low income, we had the subsidized care, and uh, so that was great, and now this year they tell me that I make too much money. I don't make any more money than I made before, but I make too much money so I can no longer qualify for a subsidy, so I have to take insurance, but he says I can't afford to buy the insurance, so as a consequence, they'll penalize me and I'll have to pay a fee, a fine, a tax for medical coverage, which I don't have. And he's, he says, it's like, it's like this loop you're in. You can't get out of it. You're just stuck there in this space. And that's increasingly what I find people are ha happening. Uh, it may have happened to you already. You may have realized that you're not getting the subsidy and, and um, <clears throat> it's going to make it more expensive because essentially <clears throat> the government is no longer going to be subsidizing health care after this year as they have been for the previous three years. So, but when you, when you create a crisis like that, people, you know, basically say, you know, it's like one politician, I can't remember her name, I always remember, forget Nancy Pelosi's name, but when she said, you know, you know uh, we need to pass the law so then you can read it and find out what's in it. And that's kind of the approach that people take to a lot of things, just solve my problem, make the difficulty go away, and then, then I'll worry about what's in the details. What I thought was most interesting, though, is what Henry Kissinger said in an op-ed piece that he wrote for the International Herald Tribune. And uh, I mean, he's a, a brilliant man, but he made an interesting comment. He said, the ultimate challenge is to shape the common concern of most countries and all major ones regarding economic crisis together with a common fear of jihadist terrorism into a common strategy reinforced by the realization that the new issues like proliferation you know, of weaponry, energy, and climate change permit no national or regional solution. Now, what did he just say? <laughs> if you're questioning, I had to read it several times to say, what? Because there's almost like a, a coded messaging that goes out from many of these guys. But he says, here's the thing. If you want to really move into global governance, you have to shape a common concern. You've got to get people worried about the same thing, concerned about the same thing. And, and you have to be able to take things like economic crises or uh, terrorism from jihadists or the proliferation of weaponry and nuclear weapons and the energy crisis and climate change and get people to say, this is too big a problem 
for a nation to take care of themselves. They, they can't control this within their own borders. Therefore, we all have to join hands and work together. That's when I suddenly realized why climate change has become such a big issue. In fact, I describe, in my opinion, climate change is basically the Trojan horse because it's not something, as far as I've been able to discover, that is really supported scientifically. Um, what really began puzzling me about this was the, the inordinate and even exaggerated concern about what used to be called global warming. Remember that? It was global warming that Al Gore told us we need to be global warming. And then last winter when Buffalo, New York got eight feet of snow in November, you know, and, we get, and they were playing, please let there be global warming, please. And even in our own circumstance, when I stick my head outside the door and I say, let it warm, let it warm, um, it, it, it really began to strike me as being kind of strange because the evidence by... Uh, by the most recent and most interesting appointee of the Trilateral Commission, um, a man who is now the Secretary of Defense, who uh, has been a, a, a wonk. He's a scientist by, by profession, by training and education. He <clears throat> has no military experience. Um, he is um, a, a committed homosexual who has promoted the idea of, of, of allowing homosexuals uh, to serve within the military and also the idea that women should now be allowed to go into combat roles. I don't know if you're aware of that, that women have been now uh, cleared to serve in combat role along with men, even though the Marine Force, uh, the Marine Department did an entire study on the effects and said it's not a good idea, but he just pushed that aside and said, doesn't matter, we're going to do this anyway. Our Secretary of Defense, uh, Ashton Carter, has declared when he first was appointed to this position by, by our president that the number one concern of the Department of Defense was going to be climate change. <clears throat> In a press release uh, on July 29th, 2015, he, part of it said, following, quote, global climate change will aggravate problems such as poverty, social tensions, environmental degradation, ineffectual leadership, weak political institutions that threaten stability in a number of countries. And it goes on, therefore, he's instructed the Undersecretary of Defense for policy to provide a report that identifies the most serious and likely climate-related security risks. Climate-related security risks. Now, the thinking behind this is, is as climate change comes and, and nations begin to collapse under the pressure of climate change, that uh, there'll be people moving from place to place, there'll be rebellions and revolutions, and America will have to come in and, and save the day over and over again, even within our own country, even in our own country. People in California are going to be rioting because their lattes are not hot. So, I mean, there's some, some scary things just going down. I mean, I, but what he's doing essentially is he's echoing the position of his boss, President Obama, and, and the members of his administration who have repeatedly declared that climate change is a greater threat to us than radical Islam. Now, <clears throat> January 15, 2008, when the president was running for his first term of office, <clears throat> he made the statement, or right, after, right before he took office, he said, the immediate danger of oil-backed terrorism is eclipsed 
only by the long-term threat from climate change, which will lead to devastating weather patterns, terrible storms, drought, and famine. Um, when he was speaking at the Coast Guard graduation not too long ago, he made the following statement. He said, climate change constitutes a serious threat to global security, an immediate risk to our national security, and make no mistake, it will impact how our military defends our country. To, speaking to the United Nations Climate Summit this last September, he said, for all the immediate challenges that we gather to address this week, terrorism, instability, inequality, disease, nevertheless, there is one issue that will define the contours of this century more dramatically than any other, and that is the urgent and growing threat of a changing climate. Now, <clears throat> Many people wondered why our president seemed so nonplus when the Paris terrorist attacks took place and then they took place in San Bernardino in California. And most people were really kind of blown away because he just didn't seem to really be all that bothered or all that concerned and really didn't offer any kind of new initiative or different approach to the problem. And he was widely criticized in the media, uh, even friendly media, for basically kind of acting as if he really wasn't concerned. And I think the answer is because he's really not concerned. He doesn't consider that to be the greatest threat, the greatest danger. I'm not saying he doesn't care about that, but I don't believe he really considers that to be the biggest issue. In fact, I think in many ways it serves a useful foil for other things that he would really like to be able to implement. It's kind of like the, the, the magician who is able to fool you with sleight of hands because he redirects without you noticing your attention from what he's doing by saying, you know, look up here while they do this over here. And, and, and you know, we, we're all amazed and realize that something has changed, but we don't know what. We know that David Copperfield didn't really make the Statue of Liberty go away, but, boy, it was convincing. Nonetheless... So what I think we, we really need to begin to uh, address this issue is about the idea of this being a settled issue. And I've, I've read this over and over again, people saying, well, climate change is a settled issue. Ninety-seven percent of scientists all agree that climate change, and, and things like that sound very impressive when they're thrown out there. But I think, but as one climate researcher pointed out, a fellow by the name of Joseph Olson, in a paper that I read, he says, there was never a compelling case for human-caused global warming. In other words, human-caused global warming means that because we're producing CO2, that that's causing a greenhouse effect, which is going to lead to a warming of the planet. Now, think about the greenhouse effect. What happens in a greenhouse? Stuff grows. <laughs> you see, plants feed off of what? Okay. <clears throat> in fact, there is evidence, strong evidence, that there have been significantly higher particulate levels of CO2 in our atmosphere. Right now, they're fearful it's going to reach 200 particulates per whatever the measurement is. We know in not too recent history it's been as high as 400% and even maybe as high as 2,000%. The point is that what it does is plants thrive in that kind of environment. And there's, uh, and rather than being something that's terrible. 
But as he goes on, he says in, in this statement, uh, the climate change hypothesis is not science, it's sorcery driven by hysteria by political opportunists. He says politics should never dictate science. Unfortunately, it's played an inappropriately dominant role here. What, what is he going on to say? He basically goes on to say that the official science has allowed itself to be ruled by alarmism. Unless the politicians and voters accept the real science, we're doomed to suffer through another very expensive mistake. Mankind should not be so ignorant as to think that we can control or are responsible for climate change. The climate has always been changing and will continue to change. You know, it's called summer, winter, fall, spring. I mean, it's... Anyway, short of modifying the Earth's orbit and axis, there's nothing we can do about it except to adapt. Even the effects of a nuclear winter would be dissipated within a decade. In other words, if there were a nuclear winter, nuclear war fills the atmosphere with all sorts of particulates and it blocks out the sun, within a decade the effects would be gone and things would come back to a normal pattern. Essentially what he's saying is this whole thing is closer to sorcery than it is science. Well, I'm not a scientist and I don't pretend that I'm qualified to comment on his observations. <clears throat> other than looking out the window from time to time and run wondering when the warming is going to come back. You know, you guys are brave. It's supposed to hit 10 degrees tonight. I don't know what, you know, anyway. But there are plenty of qualified people who do not question, who do question the science behind global warming. In fact, uh, Maurice Newman, who is a science advisor to Prime Minister of Australia, made the, common, the following comment. He said, the real agenda is concentrated political authority. Global warming is the hook. It's about a new world order under the control of the UN. It is opposed to capitalism and freedom and has made environmental catastrophism a household topic to achieve this objective. So what are some of the facts around it? Well, there's some inconvenient facts. For example, let's talk about those poor polar bears that are starving to death up there in the Arctic. In 1960, there were 5,000 polar bears. Today, there are 25,000. We don't hear about that. We see these pictures of this poor, decrepit polar bear crawling along looking for something to eat. And believe me, if you were there, you would be what he would eat. Uh, <clears throat> whether whether there's seals available or not, those suckers will eat anything. They're the scariest creatures on the planet to me. Their jaws on land is what they are. But what about that? Or how about this one as an inconvenient fact? When you look at the models, global temperatures are not going up. In fact, they have gone up basically on an average of 0.11 centigrade per decade over the last few decades. That's less than a tenth of 1%. In fact, the University of Alabama in Huntsville said that global climate trends since November 16, 1968, 1978 have gone up 0.11 centigrade per decade. Uh, remote sensing systems said the simulation as a whole are predicting too much warming. NASA in April 1990 said satellite analysis of the atmosphere is more accurate and should be adopted as the standard way to monitor global temperature changes. In other words, how do they measure where the temperature is? Well, the old way of doing it and the one that's been relied upon is uh, basically weather stations all across the region. 
In fact, uh, <clears throat> one meteorologist, Anthony Watts, uh, the lead author of a, of a study on this said, quote, the majority of weather stations by, used by NOAA, uh, NOAA is the federal agency which is responsible for predicting, forecasting, and documenting the weather. So they're the ones who give you, they're the guys who produce the weather reports that the guys on TV use. <clears throat> and uh, so do I need to say more? Anyway, but uh, the majority of weather stations used by NOAA to detect climate change temperature signal have been compromised by the encroachment of artificial surfaces like concrete, and asphalt, and heat sources like air conditioner exhaust, and it's led to inflated temperature trends. Now, what's interesting about this is that <clears throat> most of us can recognize that. I remember one time I was speaking in, in Phoenix in August because God hates me. Okay. <laughs> Anyway, it was really nice. I mean, speaking of this conference, it was in the, was in the, in the Hilton in, in downtown Phoenix, really a nice place to hang out until you step out the door. And I remember they were going to take me to this restaurant, and I was waiting in the parking lot for the car to come at 10 o'clock at night, and I could, my feet got so hot from the radiant heat, I had to find a green place to stand, and I could feel the heat, and I thought to myself, so this is what it feels like to be fried alive. I mean, it, it, it was unbelievable, but there was just this retention of this heat that built up, and they were explaining to me that Phoenix has become much hotter because there's so much concrete and asphalt everywhere. It's not being absorbed. It's not being radiated. It's not being radiated. It's being actually held into the surface for a longer period of time. So <clears throat> NASA has clearly said, that the most, the most accurate way, as I just read a moment ago, is to use satellites. Satellites can measure the temperature around the earth and get accurate readings based upon the real temperatures, not based upon uh, ambient temperature measurements on the ground. So when the, when the uh, House committee asked for the satellite imagery from NOAA, they ignored the request. They sought to subpoena it, and they continued to ignore it. Finally, Judicial Watch actually filed a Freedom of Information Act, and the ruling from the court forced them to release the data from their satellite readings. Why? Why are they reluctant? Because it doesn't match. It doesn't show that the earth is getting warmer. What it shows is that their measurements from land-based stations are inaccurate. In fact, the bigger concern right now is global cooling. Uh, NASA made this statement, basically said, burning fossil fuels and cutting down trees causes global cooling, a new study found. <laughs> now, <laughs> why is that? Because it doesn't retain the heat like plants do. It tends to reflect it back into the air. And so you actually find that it causes the temperature to drop. The National Astronomy Meeting in Wales, Northumbria, uh, uh, recently held a conference. A university professor by the name of Valentina Zakorova said that fluctuations of an 11-year cycle of solar activity the sun goes through would be responsible for a freeze like that which has not been experienced since the 1600s. Now, what was the 1600s? From 1300 to 1600... Europe went through what they call the mini ice age. Many people don't realize this, but England, <clears throat> when it was under the Roman control, 
uh, used to have as their staples grapes and wine, uh, grapes and uh, wheat. That was their primary food. They grew wheat just like they did in Italy and, and grapes. And what happened? They had a mini ice age, and in order to survive, people went to root crops, and that's why Northern Europe shifted their entire diet from things like wheat to potatoes and other uh, underground crops that could survive the freezes or the colder weather and colder climate, and also went to drinking beer instead of drinking wine because the, the climate changed. And so... They, what they're predicting is because of the, the, the decrease in sun flares that we, in night, by, by 2030, they predict that we will be going into another extreme cooling cycle. And what we should be more concerned about is the fact that we won't have the oil reserves and coal reserves to heat our houses as the temperature begins to drop much lower the bigger concern is that our agriculture will suffer because we don't have, uh, because of the cooling of the temperatures. Uh, of course, there's the issue of the, uh, the seas are, are rising. I remember seeing not too long ago some poor, poor um, <clears throat> indigenous gentleman you know, pleading with the UN because his island is being threatened to be swelled up and swallowed up and their homeland's gone because of global warming and the sea levels are rising and so forth. So what is happening with the sea levels? Well, <clears throat> they've risen about um, between one millimeter and three millimeters, which is the difference between, a, uh, as you see, a paperclip and two pennies. And uh, I don't. I think most of the atolls can survive that. Um, it's interesting because NASA again noted that Antarctica—that's the South Pole—is not currently contributing to sea level rise, but is taking 0.23 millimeters uh, per year away. In other words, Antarctica is getting bigger, not smaller. Uh, geology. Stanford Geology. Magazine said, global sea level is less sensitive to high atmospheric carbon dioxide concentrations than previously thought. Geology Magazine in March 2015 said, no islands have been lost. The majority have enlarged. And there has been a 7.3% increase in net island area over the past century. There's no evidence of heightened erosion over the past half century. Uh, the government in Denmark, they said recently, Arctic sea ice is increasing with the extent of ice at its highest it's been since 2004. So in other words, whatever the trend was, now it's beginning to reverse itself. Again, NASA said Arctic sea ice persisted in the James and Hudson Bays well into August of 2015. It was reported that the worst midsummer ice conditions in 20 years was preventing the routine delivery of supplies by ship. The Canadian Ice Service has said sea ice in at least three eastern Canadian polar bear subpopulations was well above normal for 2015. Uh, the Guardian newspaper from England in July 2015, said the Arctic Sea is up at least a third after a cool summer in 2013. It would suggest, they said, that sea ice is more resilient, perhaps, 
than we thought. It's a, I, you know, I, I kind of like to bring my own, my own scientific training to bear on this. And one of the things I've found through my own experimentation is that if you take water and you put it in a cold place, it becomes a solid. I got, if you need me to help your kids with their homework, I'm available. It's a genius. But what about all the extreme weather? I mean, what about all this extreme weather? My son called me from Nashville, and he, they were <clears throat> under a, uh, they were hiding under their stairs. He had tornadoes coming through there last week, and, and uh, he was saying, yeah, I was talking to somebody, he said, this is the worst tornado season they've ever seen. It's also the first tornado season. But it was interesting, because is that reality, or do sometimes our perceptions distort our perspective? Well, the Journal of American Meteorological Society in July 2012 said, our evidence does not support the presence of significant trends for minor, major, or total hurricanes. For the last several years, they've been, they've been predicting that we're going to have these, the worst hurricane seasons ever because of global warming and climate change. The hurricanes just forgot to show up. The UN's own uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And this is, a, this is an important thing because you'll find that when you talk about climate change, the, IN, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a UN uh, body, is re responsible for really providing information to the world about climate change. <clears throat> Basically, in their fifth assessment report, their most recent, they said this. <laughs> There's not enough evidence at the present to suggest more than low confidence in a global scale observed trend in drought or dryness. In other words, there is nothing unusual in the water patterns. Now, in California, <clears throat> you understand that California is suffering significantly for an absence of water. Well, not really. They really have as much water as they've ever had. The problem is they're just consuming more than they've ever consumed before. Much of California is a desert. And they have simply uh, planted, especially vineyards. I mean, the wine industry is exploding across it, and they're just sucking water out of the ground at an unprecedented level. And it's because it's the, ma the major engine of the California economy is agriculture and grape growing and, and vineyards is number one in producing uh, 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 wines around the world. And as a consequence, they're just simply sucking the water out of the ground. Um, but yet we're given the impression that this is happening because the climate is changing. Well, I grew up in California, and I lived through many droughts. Remember in the 70s, we had that saying, if it's yellow, it's mellow, and if it's brown, flush it down. So the idea was that we'd put a brick in our toilet bowl, and, you know, to save water and <clears throat> all these kinds of things, you know, that we were going through. But never, nobody ever thought about global warming being the cause or climate change. It was just simply we are going through a dry patch as the state and the southern part of the country has forever. But anyway, they go on to say, there is low confidence in any long-term increase in tropical cyclone activity. In other words, we don't really have any evidence that there's more cyclones. 
And they said, and there's low confidence in attributing global changes to any particular cause. So not only do you say we don't see any really trends or patterns, but we don't even see any causes for this. Any increased hurricane damages have not been conclusively attributed to anthropogenic, or that is man-caused, climate change. Most such claims are not based on scientific attribution methods. There is a low confidence for trends on tornadoes, and the evidence for climate-driven changes in rivers and floods is not compelling. Now, it's interesting. We'll talk a little bit more about the IPCC and how they fit into this picture. But the Global Warming Policy Foundation, 2013, said, when closely examined, there appears to be no increase in extreme weather events in recent years. They go on to say the global warming extreme weather link is more a perception than a reality. The purported warming extreme weather links has been fostered by increased and uncritical media attention to recent extreme weather events. Now, one of the things, I, I assume that all of you understand this, and I don't mean to sound like I'm faulting uh, people in the media, but the way that media works today in much of the world, particularly in the United States, is it's part of the entertainment medium. I mean, it's more to entertain than it is to inform. If it was just there to be informing, you wouldn't watch it, so they have to provide all sorts of things to, to keep you connected, create personalities that you find attractive, and little they cover things that are they call human interest stories and so forth. But as far as hard information, you're probably not going to get it through the television. And, and, and saying that, you realize that the demand to create programming and to get information out is incessant. So much of it is generated from networks or other associations that provide them with the news stories. So if you watch ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox News, and so forth, most of those people, the local programmers, are simply reading the information that has been sent to them from headquarters, from the news divisions of that particular thing. It's not something so that if you travel around the country, one of the things you find quite interesting is you'll see the same news stories <laughs> being presented in different cities by the same networks because they all come from the same source. And particularly what you have to realize is that local, particularly local, but even national news people, and I, I don't mean to be, use this as a pejorative, I, I apologize if it sounds like it because it does, they're talking heads. They are reading the teleprompter, they're telling you what's put in front of them. There's not a lot of what we call hard news research. There just isn't time. There isn't the ability to do that. So basically when information is fed and it's information that's sensational, kind of stuff that gets people to go, what? Hey, hoo-ha. Then it's, you know, they're competing with YouTube right now and everything else out there. You know, they're, they're trying to compete with your fascination with other people's cats. I don't even get that one. But, you know, so they, they got all this stuff. They're trying to compete in this media environment. And so if something will get you to react and get interested and watch, I mean, there's nothing. You know they're coming out with an OJ movie? about O.J. and... Yeah. My wife says, you should watch that. I said, we did. <laughs> I can't tell you how many good hours I wasted watching that white Bronco. <laughs> I mean, it, it was better than Dallas. I mean, it was really, really engaging. I, I'm sorry, I'm making light of something that was actually very horribly tragic, but nonetheless, my point is <clears throat> that... 
it's not people, it's not like they're trying to be deceptive. They're just trying to make a living, create a career. And, and so they, we were fed this stuff, and they believe it to be true because, after all, you get it from authoritative sources. And if it comes from the government, if it comes from people like from the IPCC and the UN and all and so forth, it's just, of course you, you believe it. But I think what was most surprising that I came across recently, this really shocked me, was a speech that was given by Patrick Moore. Now, you probably don't know who Patrick Moore is. I didn't know who he was until I read his, his speech. But Patrick Moore was formerly the president of uh, Greenpeace International, you know, the guys who run around chasing, trying to stop whaling from going on in the world. He was one of the founders, and he was the president of that organization for many years. <clears throat> and he is no longer associated with them because he says they have become a political advocacy group who hate people. And uh, he said they've gone in a whole different direction of climate change and all the rest that has nothing to do with whales or anything else. And, but he was giving a, a message, speaking at the Institution of Mechanical Engineers in London here not too long ago. And, and he's become a very vocal critic of what he calls the faulty science of climate change. He himself is a scientist. He was the only member of Greenpeace who was actually a scientist in their governing board who was actually had a scientific background. He said most, everybody else came from a, a, a non-scientific background. But he made the following statements. He says, NASA tells us that carbon dioxide controls Earth's temperature. In, a, in childlike denial of the many other factors involved in climate change. He says, this is reminiscent of NASA's contention that there might be life on Mars. Decades after it was demonstrated that there was no life on Mars... NASA continues to use it as a hook to raise public funding for more expeditions to the red planet. I hope I'm not disillusioning anybody right now. I mean, <laughs> the promulgation of fear of climate change now serves the same purpose. As Bob Dylan prophetically pointed out, money doesn't talk, it swears. Even in one of the most admired science organizations in the world. On the political front, the leaders of the G7, the group of seven, which is the largest nations with the largest economies in the world, plan to end extreme poverty and hunger by phasing out 85% of the world's energy supply, including 98% of the energy used to transport people and goods, including food. In other words, we're going to remove fossil fuel energy, which supplies 98% of the energy to transport goods and foods to people who are the poorest. I mean, somebody asked me, if these guys are against agriculture, how are they going to feed people? To which I so brilliantly responded, exactly, exactly. The emperors of the world should be required to stand naked for making such a foolish statement. The world's top climate body, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, is hopelessly conflicted by its makeup and its mandate. The panel is composed solely of world meteorological organizations, weather forecasters, and the United Nations Environment Program, environmentalists, essentially. 
He says, both these organizations are focused primarily on short-term timescales, day to maybe a century or two. But most significant is with the panel's mandate from the United Nations. So what he just said is that the problem is that these are not the top of the pyramid of people in, in weather science. And he said, and basically these are guys who just look at short term. They, they, from day to day to maybe out to 100 years, but they're not really looking at weather patterns over thousands of years, which we are able to do. That's not their, their, their ballyhook. Ballywick. But he goes on to say that they're conflicted because he says they're required only. This is their mandate, quote, they're required only to focus on, quote, a change of climate which is attributed directly or indirectly to human activity that alters the composition of the atmosphere and which is in addition to natural climate variability. He explains, so if the IPCC found that climate change was not being affected by human alteration of the atmosphere, in other words, wasn't caused by mankind burning fossil fuels, or that it is not dangerous there would be no need for them to exist. They are virtually mandated to find on the side of apocalypse. Scientific certainty, politically, political pandering, a hopelessly conflicted IPCC, and now the Pope, spiritual leader of the Catholic Church, in a bold move to reinforce the concept of original sin, says quote, the earth looks like an immense pile of filth and we must go back to pre-industrial bliss or is that squalor? And then there's the actual immense pile of filth fed to us more than three times daily by the green media nexus, a seething cauldron of imminent doom like we are already condemned to damnation in hell and there's little chance of redemption. I fear for the end of enlightenment. I fear an intellectual gulag with Greenpeace as my prison guards. Now, I don't know if you grasp the eloquence of what he said. I could listen to this guy all day long. But essentially what he is saying, what so many people are saying that in this area, is that uh, there just is no basis for this. So, if global warming is not real, what's the real purpose of this, what we might call an insidious path or push? And I would suggest to you it has everything to do with the end of national sovereignty and the establishment of a one-world government under the auspices of the United Nations. Richard Gardner, who is <clears throat> wrote an article in the Council of Foreign Relations Journal, in April 1974, um, when he said the new world order will have to be built from the bottom up rather than from the top down. In other words, in other words you do it by changing the world at a grassroots level. You get people believing on a grassroots level that this is the best thing we can do rather than trying to simply come in and force it upon people from on top. You get people to clamor for it as a necessity to save them. But an end run on national sovereignty, he says basically eroding it piece by piece 
will accomplish much more than the old-fashioned frontal attack. In other words, he says, we have to do this subtly. Charles Derber argues in his book, People Before Profit. He says that globalization encompasses three institutions. Global financial markets, in other words, the, the banks. Transnational companies, which essentially are all major corporations now, have no longer any kind of loyalty to any nationality. Uh, they are transnational companies, whether they're Ford, GM, whatever, they're transnational. You can buy VW and Hyundai and everything here in the United States. They're, they no longer have a loyalty to any particular uh, national identity. They're transnational companies. And national governments linked to each other in economic and military alliances led by the United States and rising global governments through such organizations the World Trade Organization. What is the World Trade Organization? The WTO is a uh, UN-based organization that settles disputes between countries over uh, trade and treaties and things of that nature. They're the ones who can sue a country and basically say that you aren't playing fair, you're creating too many taxes, and therefore we're going to actually find you. So that they, and it's an interesting way it works because if you get everybody in the room to agree that this one guy is the guy who settles the disputes, then it doesn't matter who you are. It's like us going into the, this local, local uh, the Paris Global uh, Climate Conference, and and uh, there were 192 nations that were represented there, and part of the uh, agreement was that if you don't follow the plan, that you are basically vulnerable to sanctions. And in the, of those countries, of those 192 countries. The United States, which has the largest economy in the world, has one vote. Has one vote. The other 191 can vote against us, and as a result, we are the ones who are vulnerable. The same thing is true of the world. The International Monetary Fund, which supplies funding to the to the world, used to be run basically. It's always up until recently. The president has been a, uh, a United States citizen. Now it is a gal from France who runs that. The World Bank is another institution. Basically, he goes on to say these interacting institutions create a new global power system where sovereignty is globalized taking power and constitutional authority away from nations and giving it to global markets and international bodies. Now, I should have noted this to you. This guy's in favor of this. He's not speaking against this. He thinks this is great. So he's basically saying this is what happens. So what you have is uh, our president goes to Paris to his climate agreement, and he knows that uh, the U.S. Congress would never pass some of the restrictive laws that they agreed to in Paris. So what we have instead of treaties, we have agreements. And instead of enacting laws, we have executive orders. So that little by little, as the president writes executive orders, he begins to change the way things function, and it begins to bring us into increasing compliance with the rest of the world. So that it's happening by fiat rather than by any kind of le legislation, any kind of legality. And, and I know that some of you, 
you know, this, I, I'm not trying to influence how you vote in the next election because let me be uh, as honest as I feel I can be. I don't think it's going to make any difference. I don't think it's going to make any difference because it's, it's too many people who are too invested in things continuing the way they are. And those who stand up and try to reverse it uh, are gone pretty quick. They pay the price. Because we live in a culture, a country where in order to, uh, you know, what it cost uh, $12 million to run for the governor of the state of Washington. When, you know, uh, a man like Donald Trump can run for president simply because he can write a check for a billion dollars. At least that's what he tells us. And you realize that the, the hundreds of millions of dollars that are going to be spent, I mean, the next election for president is going to top, and each party is going to top it, over a billion dollars that are going to be spent. You realize that <clears throat> there are people who are putting that money in. <clears throat> now, I, and I just don't know that there's going to be a, it's going to really make much difference because you have to make so many agreements to get to that point, to, to garner that kind of support that I that you're beholden to too many people on too many levels. At least that's my opinion. You can take it for what you think of it. You can send me an email and tell me I'm, I'm, I'm full of it. But. but I, you know, I just, uh, I, I agree with Jimmy Fallon. I agree with Jimmy Fallon. He, he said recently that if Bernie Sanders were elected president, he would be the first socialist president of the United States since 2008. <laughs> Which brings me to the Council on Foreign Relations. What is this? Well, it's another one of those terms you hear out there about the trilaterals, the Bilgebergers, and the Council on Foreign Relations. What is the Council on Foreign Relations? Well, it's a think tank that specializes in U.S. foreign policy. Um, and on international affairs in particular. And, uh, the CFR, as it's called, uh, started a program in 2008 called International Institutions and Global Governance. And the aim of this new movement was to identify the institutional requirements for effective multilateral cooperation in the 21st century. In other words, how can we get the world and the nations of the world all to work together in one great big group hug? Um, who are some of the members? Interesting people. Uh, Robert Rubens, who was uh, Secretary of Treasury under Bill Clinton. John Abzade, the commander of CENTCOM, the U.S. Army, um, Central Command. Um, Madeleine Albright, the former Secretary of State. Uh, Tom Brokaw. Colin Powell. Uh, Christine Todd Whitman, who was the Secretary, former EPA Secretary. Um, interesting group of people because you begin to find these same people tend to be the, the trilateralists, their their council for relationships. They all basically it's it's all a club, and these are relatively small numbers of people who all are pretty much in the same circle. Um, but what I found the. Council on Foreign Relations president, a fellow I mentioned earlier, Peter Haas, who was also a member of the Trilateral, in a message entitled Climate Change and Reimagining State Sovereignty. I want to reimagine state sovereignty. He explained the goal. He says, some governments are prepared to give up elements of sovereignty to address the threat of global climate change. All of this suggests that sovereignty must be redefined if states are to cope with globalization. At its core, globalization entails the increasing volume, 
velocity, and importance of flows within and across borders, specifically of people, idea, greenhouse gases, goods, dollars, drugs, viruses, emails, weapons, and a good deal else, challenging one of sovereignty's fundamental principles, the ability to control what crosses borders in either direction. For those of you who get frustrated because we seem to be unable to control our borders, you have to understand why that's so hard to do. It's because it's not what's wanted. The idea is to create this free flow across borders so that there are no more restrictions from one country to another. And that's where you can realize that it's not incompetence. It's, it's an ideology. It's, it's a belief system that really believing this is the way that we need to go. So how in the world are you going to enforce something like this? Well, this is one of the more fascinating things. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know if you realize that we have a new attorney general, Loretta Lynch. Um, she just uh, gave a speech at the United Nations recently. I never knew the attorney general was supposed to give speech to the United Nations. But, um, but she informed the United Nations that her office is working on several American cities, with American, several American cities, uh, to form what she called Strong Cities Networks, which is a law enforcement initiative that would encompass the entire globe. So essentially, working with the United Nations and nations around the globe in major cities all around the country to create a unified police enforcement agency. She says, the, her speech said, quote, to counter violent extremism, we need determined action at all levels of governments to succeed. We must coordinate our efforts and cooperate across borders. The Strong Cities Network will enable cities across the globe to pool our resources, knowledge, and best practice together and thus leave us standing stronger in the fight against one of the great threats to modern society. The SCN, Strong Cities Network, will include an international steering committee of approximately 25 cities and other subnational entities from different regions that will provide the SCN with strategic direction. What are these subnational entities that are giving direction to this new organization which has direct control and influence over police enforcement in this country? It will be run by the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, the ISD. What the heck is that? A leading international think-and-do tank. A think-and-do tank. <laughs> we think it, and then we do it. <laughs> wow. With a long-standing track record of working to prevent violent extremism which is, has been defined, interestingly, not foreign jihadist terrorism, but the greatest terrorist thought, uh, threat is believed to be homegrown terrorism. So when you listen to the, the president and others talk about the shootings in San Bernardino and you hear them talking about gun violence, we've got to control gun violence, 
And we hear all these things about how that we it, extremists and and uh, when when the guy walks into Planned Parenthood in Colorado, he shoots three people. Immediately, it's called terrorism. In San Bernardino, how long did it take? It took him a week before they were finally could say it was terrorism, even though the evidence was all over the wall. What is that about? You see. Um, one of the things you need to understand is it is not within the job description or the legal profile of the Attorney General of the United States to get involved in anything outside the borders of the US, United States of America. We are not. The FBI, which serves under the Justice Department, cannot go to another country without being invited to come and given permission to be there and has no authority to arrest anything, anybody or do anything because they are a domestic police enforcement agency. And yet this is something that's wholly outside of the, the Constitution in the United States. It's wholly illegal, along with so many other things. It's, you might as well give up count. But essentially, this is staggering to me. That is creating a, a global police force. It was one thing to create a, a UN army. It's quite another thing to create a global police force. Which is... Uh, it sounds like top-down enforcement... Um, let's see, I'm just about out of time. I'm actually way out of time. But, um, but in, the last, in our last session tonight, I want to continue this conversation talking about how is this going to be implemented on a religious level, which is absolutely fascinating to me. I hope it is to you. God, I pray that you'd give us grace as we break for a bit here, and I pray that you would... Um, Really uh, open our eyes to the world we live in. And I pray that we could be anchored in the hope of your coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, see you back at, oh, wow, let's see. Let's say a, a quarter till 1045. Does that work? I mean, I'll see if anybody comes back. <laughs>